Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We're working through a series this summer going through imperatives from the New Testament, commands, instructions from the New Testament, things we're called to do that are timely for us to consider in this season of transition that the Lord has us in. Last week, we heard Pastor Baker exhort us from Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses of Ephesians 4, that uh, we are to work diligently to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul, in those verses, by the way, if you haven't heard that message, if you were out of town and you missed that, would you please go back and listen to it? It's a very helpful, timely, important word for us in this season, especially. In those verses, Paul is exhorting us, or he establishes that we have this essential unity that God has created through Jesus Christ by his spirit, and we're to work hard to maintain and preserve it. Today, we're going to talk about the verses that immediately follow those in Ephesians. Paul has more to say on this theme In the first verses, it's like he takes us on a tour of the car from the outside. Guys, you have a beautiful car here. It's this car of unity, and you need to work hard to carefully maintain and take care of this car. In this next section, it's like he opens the hood, and he gives us a peek into the inner workings of this incredible machine uh, that God has created, his church. We get a peek into how this engine that drives this car down the road functions, Listen to it purr, kind of a moment. And it's very dense, actually. You know, you look at an engine and you're like, I'm like, I don't understand the first thing about that. It's pretty neat, though. Some of you understand engines. Uh, I don't. But it's like, this is what we get in this passage. We get quite a lot of intricacy, quite a lot of truth, big truths that are packed tightly together into a small set of verses and it's, uh, it's difficult to work through. My, my request to you is that you'd be patient. This is a different kind of text than most of the other texts that we're going to be looking at in this series this summer. Be patient with it. Actually, an engine is a really poor metaphor, inadequate metaphor, for this wondrous thing, this wondrous system of what the church is. The church is like an organism. It's the, the analogy Scripture uses is of a human organism, of a human body. And to this day, with all of our scientific exploration and knowledge and medical advancement, we still don't know the first thing about the human body, or hardly the first thing about it. It's quite a wondrous thing. And Paul gives us a peek into the inner workings of this organism, which is the church, and it's quite a system. And we want to take a comprehensive look at it from, through the words of what he says and learn from it. He's going to take us into a deep dive today, hopefully just a 45-minute deep dive, into the inner workings, into the mystery of his church, how it's designed. And at the end, I think there's just a pretty simple, straightforward takeaway point for all of us to consider. Let's look at this together, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, picking up from last week. This is the words... These are the words of God, and they're eternally true. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lowest parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is the word of the Lord. This is a very important passage of Scripture in coming to understand the nature of the church and its ministry, having a, a proper biblical philosophy of ministry that's centered right here in this part of Ephesians 4. But it's very dense and very intricate. There's a lot that's packed into a tight space. So to try to help us work through it, I've come up with eight summary statements that help us unpack and appreciate the big truths that Paul is bringing together here. So peering under the hood into the mystery of Jesus' church, here's what we see, statement number one. Paul wants us to see that each of us has a gift from Jesus, a token of his triumphant ascension to the Father. Each of us has a gift from Jesus, a token of his triumphant ascent to the Father. It says in verse seven, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. If you are in Christ, you, I mean you, each one of you, has a special gift from him to you. It's a token of his victory and of his glorious reign. Paul's not referring to the gift of, of saving grace, of, of salvation here. He's talked about that at length already in the early chapters of this letter. He's talking about here something that's distinct from and given in addition to that grace of salvation. It's, he says it's something that's measured out that you receive in, according to the measure of Jesus Christ. Saving grace is not like that. If you're saved, you're saved to the full. You're not more saved than the person next to you who's saved. There's no distinction between man or woman in saving grace. There's no, nobody's half saved or more saved. This, though, is, a, is according to a certain measure, according to the measure of Christ's gift, as if each man has his own portion of something, of grace. What is this grace that he's talking about? The image that, that Paul uses to help us understand this, what this grace is and where it comes from, is the image of like a conquering hero 
who has won a great victory and he's coming in procession back into the city and he reaches into his bag of plunder and he's dispensing to his comrades the spoils of war, enriching them out of, you know, just magnanimity. He's just like, there's just everybody's rejoicing and they're all sharing in the spoils of war together. That's the image Paul uses. And he borrows this image, he brings this image into the New Testament, from the Old Testament. The all caps there indicates a quote from the Old Testament. In this case, the book of Psalms, Psalm 68. David there in Psalm 68 is extolling the triumphs of God Jehovah who wins battles for him. That's what David is doing. When he ascended on high, says David, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Actually, David has him saying he receives gifts from men, which is an interesting glimpse into how the New Testament apostles use quotations from the Old Testament. Sometimes they're quoting other paraphrases that were common in those days that people knew. It could be what Paul is doing. There is a paraphrase that apparently says this, puts it this way as he does here. Or he could be trying to just show that the glories of Jesus are greater than David even knew. So great is Jesus that he not only receives gifts for men, but he passes them on to others. Either way, the idea that Paul's trying to get across seems to be this. And it's an idea that resonates with uh, what we know about Jesus, his coming down, his humbling of himself, and what he accomplished on the cross, and the reward and the glory that is his as a result. This is what David, this is what Paul is trying to get across. In his incarnation, Jesus descends to the lowest parts of the earth as though to a field of battle where he triumphs over Satan by the de- his death on the cross. And part of that triumph, what he accomplishes, is he liberates a host of captives. He takes captivity captive to himself. Did you catch this in the, in the assurance of pardon today from Romans 2? This is a very Paulian idea that you are now a captive of Jesus. If you've been saved by Jesus, you're not just saved to, you know, freedom. You're saved as a captive of him now. Listen to this. This is from the assurance of pardon from Romans 6, 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. You're now a slave to God. Jesus takes, you, you are a captive of Satan. He takes you captive to himself. But he is such a great, what? Master. That he not, he not only rescues you from the domain of darkness, he enriches you with the spoils of his victory. In his glorious ascent to heaven, he gives gifts to men. You're a recipient of just such a gift from Jesus Christ. It's like in the Chronicles of Narnia, when Father Christmas shows up on the scene and he has a special gift for each one. It's not like Hot Wheels and Barbies. Or what do my kids want? They want, what's that thing called? The Nintendo, Nintendo Switch. It's not a Nintendo Switch. It's like, a, it's a tool for battle. Something that they can use in service of their master that's a glorious and beautiful gift, but it's a tool for battle. Something they can use to serve one another and help them win the war. And that's what Jesus has done in conquering 
sin and liberating, conquering Satan and liberating us from the domain of darkness is he has given us each a special gift, like, like Peter's sword and Susan's bow and Lucy's vial of healing cordial. We've, you've received such a gift from the Lord. Nobody is left out. Notice the words it says in verse 7. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So that's where Paul starts. He wants us to understand, first of all, in this great system and organism of the church, each of us has received a gift. And that's a gift that comes as a spoil of victory from the Lord. Statement number two. The gifts we have from Jesus are spiritual gifts, gifts of his Holy Spirit, by whom Jesus fills his church with different attributes and parts of himself. The gifts we have are spiritual. They come from the Holy Spirit, and Jesus fills this church with different parts and attributes of himself by way of these gifts. We see this alluded to in verse 10. This is an idea that Paul really develops in other places of Scripture, but he's importing it here. It's important to understand what he's saying. When he says in verse 10 about Jesus, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens. Why did Jesus ascend? So that he may fill all things. Now, where is Jesus? He's in heaven. He, taking on human flesh, now is embodied forever. And that body is not here. It is in heaven. What does it say? Far above all the heavens. That's where Jesus is. And now as images of telescopes are coming out and filling our news feeds, we're getting a better and better understanding of how far away that is. Why did Jesus go there? It says in the text. So that he might fill all things. How does that work? How does Jesus go to the heavens, go so far away, in order to fill all things? It's, it's a puzzle. Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 18 to his disciples? He says, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. How does Jesus do that? How does he fulfill that promise? He fulfills this promise by his Holy Spirit. He sends his Spirit. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples before, just before his death, the night, before he was, the night he was betrayed? He says this to them, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where are you going, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. An amazing statement from Jesus. Hard to, if you can imagine being there, it'd be hard to accept. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This helper, who is he? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And what does this, what does Jesus tell them that the helper is going to do for them? Later in that passage, Jesus says, he will glorify me, and here's how he'll do it. He will take of mine, and he will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, 
Therefore I said that he, the Holy Spirit, takes what is mine, takes of mine, and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit's job is to take what's Jesus and disclose it, impart it to saints all over the world and to be there with them, empowering them to use and to understand and what he gives. Including these gifts that you've received. They are given to you by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul, in other passages where he enumerates these gifts, calls them spiritual gifts, gifts of the Spirit. He talks about this in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. What are these gifts? I just got challenged about how I phrased this in the first service just about five minutes ago or before starting this sermon. I tried to do a better job because what I, when, I, when we talked it out in the hallway, I, I thought we actually agreed. And so I must have done a bad job of expressing myself. Let me try to exp- say this. Some of the gifts that are listed in the New Testament are normative. And some of them were, were given more for that time, for the period of the founding of the church. They were sign gifts that attended the ministry of the apostles that confirmed their authenticity and authority. Those gifts, I don't believe, I think most of us don't believe, have completely ceased, but they are not normative. They're not normative. It's not like, I have the gift of performing miracles. I don't think you do. But it doesn't mean God's not still in the business of performing miracles. The apostles, though, could perform miracles. Something has happened and changed. And that's what I'm trying to say. There were gifts that were given, that were were given specially tied to the ministry of the apostles. And that office, which was important for founding the church and establishing its uh, its scriptures, its holy book, and its authority. But what are these gifts? The gifts that I'm referring to as maybe not normative are like gifts of tongues, gifts of supernatural healing, and and prophecy. But there's a whole lot of gifts that are normative, and they remain in, in place with us, and they're here in this room. They're among us to be used. What are they? Here's some of them. I tried my best to bring together the lists. They're gifts of leadership, gifts of administration, gifts of teaching, of knowledge, wisdom, discernment, exhortation, shepherding, faith, evangelism, service, Mercy, giving, and hospitality. Those are spiritual gifts that God not only gives, but empowers us to use to be a blessing to the church, to help build up this organism, this wonderful thing that God has made, the church. Jesus gives us those gifts by his Holy Spirit. They're like attributes of Jesus, parts of himself, parts of his own character, gifting, and fullness, which he has spread around and made parts of a body together 
That body is himself, his body, of which he is the head. That's the second thing that Paul wants us to understand here about the nature of the church and its ministry, its biological system. The gifts Jesus gives are spiritual, and they are different aspects or attributes of Jesus which the Holy Spirit imparts to us. Number three, chief among the gifts of the Spirit are the teaching offices of the church, of which the office of pastor-teacher is normative and perpetual. So not all the gifts are equal. Not all gifts are equal. They're not given in equal measure. If two people have the same gift or office, they're not in themselves equal in their expression of that gift. Nor are the gifts, when you stack them up against each other, themselves at all equal. There's clear priority given in Scripture to some over others. Paul mentions here, he doesn't give a full list of gifts, but he gives the ones that are most important that have top priority here in verse 11. He says, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So the word-based, the proclamation-based gifts of office are the most important gifts given to the church. Paul, in another place, in 1 Corinthians 12, even gives a numerical priority to those gifts themselves. He says, God has appointed in the church First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Now, like with these confirming sign gifts, some of these offices are not normative. They're not, they're not, they're not with us still in the way they once were. The, gifts, the gift and office of apostle, together with the ability to perform miracles that attended it, was in operation only for the founding of the church. It's no longer in effect. The office of prophet, as an office, it doesn't mean the prophecy has ceased, but the office of prophet has ceased. It's not normative for the church in the way that some of these later offices are. Our own view of church government as we practice it here in Evangel Presbyterian as a church acknowledges an ongoing office of evangelist. This is Jason Chin. Jason, are you here? Jason is ordained as an evangelist, and an evangelist goes out and works to gather a church where one does not already exist. Normally, what that evangelist does in time when a church is gathered and able to be its own independent church and congregation with its own leadership and elders, he is reordained or re commissioned, I'm not sure what we do, but you, you, you make a shift into pastor-teacher. That evangelist and the role, the role of evangelist and the role of pastor-teacher are very similar. They do very similar functions. One is just gathering a church, and one is shepherding a church. And usually the evangelist becomes a pastor-teacher in time as God blesses his work. And Jason, we pray for you, that God would bless your work. The office of pastor-teacher is definitely with us and is a perpetual office in the church to the end of the world. I say pastor-teacher. The text says pastor and teacher, pastors and teachers. I think the best way to understand this and use of this conjunction, conjunctions 
work in different ways in different contexts. I think the best way to understand this is pastor, pastors that are, that is teachers. Teaching is one of the most essential functions of the pastoral office, that together with prayer, prayer and teaching. This gift and the office of pastor-teacher, together with the office of evangelist which precedes it, is the chief remaining gift in the church. But, here's something interesting we all need to realize from this passage. Don't miss this. Why does the office of pastor-teacher exist? What is its purpose and its relationship as a gift to the other gifts of the church? This is one of the most important aspects of this passage. Why does it exist? Here's summary statement number four. The office of pastor-teacher exists to equip the saints for the work of service, literally for the work of ministration or of the ministry. The burden of that work being not on the pastor, but on the people. Look at it in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, the work of the ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. There is this kind of professionalism that creeps into churches where the paid staff are the ones who do the work and they show up and everybody else is there to receive from the work of the paid staff. And that is not a biblical model of church at all. You're not consumers. You're part of an organism, a body. My job is to equip you to function properly as a body. The burden of building up the body is your burden. It's, or rather, it's our burden together. We are not a business. We are a body. And a body is designed to care for itself, just like your body and its immune system is designed to care for your, itself in all these amazing ways. That's how Jesus has designed his church to function, through the gifts which he has given to it. That word equip, which Paul uses, comes from a word that's taken from medicine, from the bone doctor. It's a word that means like reset. The job of the pastor is to like put things in place and to reset bones that are out of joint. That's my job in equipping you, is to, is to put you in a position in the state of health through my teaching and instruction so that you will perform your function properly in a way that promotes the growth and blessing and health of the body of Christ. What does building up the body of Christ mean? What is the standard? What are we aiming at? What, is, what, is, what does health mean in this analogy? How do we measure it? Well, Paul gives us the measure. Here's my summary statement number five. The goal of our work of ministry is the maturation, the maturing of the church defined by Paul as unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and the measure of the stature belonging to the fullness of Christ. We see these in verse 13. The goal for us together 
is to grow up, to mature. And the definition of maturity is a very high bar. There's a really high ceiling put on this by Jesus or by Paul to explain what it is we're aiming at. The body is to continue to build itself up until, it says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. These are the measures of a mature church. How are we doing? Almost there? Just a little bit further to go? What about with unity? The unity of the faith. Remember how often Paul pleads with the New Testament Christians to be unified? You're constantly fighting, constantly dividing. Satan is a divider, and we have to work hard. This is one of the reasons Stephen's sermon was so helpful last week. We have to work hard to stay united, hard. Are we in a more unified? How, how much more unified are we, would you say, than the New Testament church? A better question to ask is, how much more unity is possible than we yet have? A little bit more unity? If you look around yourself, in, our, in this room, in your small group, in your family, if you look between us and other churches in our community, and the different beliefs, and the different prejudices, and strife that rises up between churches in this town. If you look at nationally, the lack of unity, we're not in a good place. There is a lot of headroom, of ceiling left to explore and to pursue. What about knowledge of the Son of God? Well, we know the gospel. John 3.16, I understand how it works. I understand how the atonement works. I get this, right? You understand that. We're good on that one. Do you remember how Paul prays in this very letter more than once that the minds and hearts of people would be enlightened, people who know the gospel like you and I do, that their minds would be enlightened to to really understand and know? Here's one of those examples. Just listen to it. Paul prays for the Ephesians. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? Paul says this is something that surpasses knowledge. He that you would be able to comprehend it with all the saints and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. How much knowledge, real, experiential, heartfelt understanding of Jesus have we achieved out of what is possible to achieve? What about the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ? This is the one that really blows my mind the most. You know those, I like to go into the gas stations with my kids and I, 
everyone's like sidle up to the door and see how they test against the, the measurement, you know, and the doors between the, to get. what are those called? Like these height measurement sticks that they have on the doors of gas stations and you can, you can test yourself. I even like to do it. Still six foot. You know how moms like mark the growth of their children on boards or sometimes on their wall? And you can see over the years how much you've grown. Where's Jesus's mark? Where's your mark? Where's the mark of this church tested against the fullness of the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there some room to grow? The fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. What a benchmark. We have some growing to do as a church. How do we grow? What's the recipe for that growth and advancement, progress? Statement number six. In order to grow... We must turn our backs on immaturity. In order to grow, we must turn our backs on spiritual infancy, a state of infancy, which Paul defines as a state of gullible instability in matters of faith. Look at verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We'll call this the imperative I thought was there when I was drawn to this passage. Technically speaking, grammatically speaking, this is a subjunctive. But Stephen explains to me it's a hortatory subjunctive, <laughs> which means it's really a command. <laughs> By other means, it is a command. We are no longer to be children. As a result of all that has proceeded in this passage, we are no longer to be children. Paul instructs us to turn away from spiritual immaturity and grow up. It's time to grow up. He's using the example, an analogy of childhood negatively, but not because he has a negative view of children. It's because he has a positive view of growth and maturity, and all the good that comes from it, and all the strength and protection that that supplies for a church. He's not down on children. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Infancy is a fact of life. Paul was a child once, child in faith. It's a necessary time of life. Nothing's wrong with it. Children are sweet. Childhood's sweet. But principled immaturity, institutionalized immaturity, prolonged immaturity is not good. It's lethal. Childhood is a state of vulnerability and weakness. It's fragile. And Paul does not want us to stay there. He wants us to be protected and strong as a church. Spiritual immaturity leaves us open to the blowing winds of change, fads, doctrinal fads, 
um, uh, fads about how you go about doing ministry, how you grow a church fads. There's a lot of those fads. Max Carell has, has eaten those and spit them out in his life and in his past. He can tell you about them. There's, he's seen them all. Or he's seen a lot of them. They keep coming around. A lot of fads. A lot of cultural fads. Immaturity in faith leaves you open to just being bounced around between what's latest and greatest. You want your doctrinal commitments to be old as the hills and twice as dusty. That's what you want. (laughs) And that's our aspiration as a church. We've said this for years. We just want to be boringly normal. When you look back at the, over the history of the church, we just want to fit in with what's been the standard of, and what's been seen as normal. There's not much normal today to, to compare yourself to, but in history, there's a long history of faithfulness that we can try to fit into. That's our, that's our goal. You do want your doctrinal commitments, though, to be ever new not in the sense that you appreciate them more, you understand them more, and you benefit from them more in your life. But you don't want to be bounced around from doctrine to doctrine. You want to be planted deep in good soil of truth. It also leaves you open to religious hucksters who are leading souls to hell. There are a lot of liars and deceivers and tricksters and frauds. The worst ones are not the ones that are obvious. Listen, we are a body. Would you please listen to your pastors first and foremost and trust us? It's our job to watch over you. Be careful about what you take in from the internet, from celebrities that you can't know who you can't feel out and decide whether you can trust and whether there's credibility to them in their life and their ministry and their calling. You can do that with your pastor, wherever you are. If you're visiting here, your pastor, would you listen to him? He's the one God has given to you to shepherd you. Immaturity leaves us vulnerable to all kinds of dangers that abound in spiritual life. We are to commit ourselves to growth. And it's, it seems silly to have to say it, but one of the things you have to do is, is kiss infancy goodbye. Sweet as it is, you've got to put it behind you and commit to growing in the Lord. We grow first by leaving spiritual infancy behind, But how else do we grow? We see this in summary statement number seven. Leaving spiritual infancy behind, we are to advance together into greater and greater maturity in Christ, the catalyst for which is truth spoken in love. That's the catalyst, the the gas in the engine that, that helps us fulfill our function and be healthy and prosper and advance and grow in maturity. Truth spoken in love. God has put the burden of growth ministry on every one of us and we are to share, we all share responsibility for the growth of the body. 
you should constantly be working to build others up. Young or old, high or low, less mature or more mature, new or a long timer, you should constantly be working to build others up in love by speaking the truth to them. Speaking the truth in love, says Paul in verse 15, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. This is how Jesus grew his disciples. This is how Paul grew the churches that he evangelized and pastored. He describes his ministry among this group, the Ephesians that he's writing to here. In the book of Acts, he says, night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. This is our job together. Admonishing, encouraging, strengthening, teaching one another with love. Do you speak the truth in love? We tend to prefer one or the other of these things that, that, that Paul brings together. Some of us are truth speakers. That's our ministry. Speak the truth. But is it in love? Some of us pride ourselves in being lovers of others because we know how to not ruffle feathers and get along and, you know, avoid conflict. We skate by, get through that conversation. And we like to think that that's love. That's not love. Love without truth is not love. Truth without love is monstrous. Jesus would have us hold these things together. Truth with love. Truth spoken in love. Do you know how to look someone in the eye and say a hard thing to them? It's very difficult to do that. To be looking somebody in the eye, keeping calm and saying a hard thing. The the people that talked to me out in the hallway did a good job. Eye contact, calmness. I could tell that something I had said, the way I'd phrased it, really bothered them. And when I understood why, how it had bothered them, I could appreciate that. It was difficult to do. Truth was spoken in love. And this is how we build one another. I was built up. Now you're built up through the love and truth speaking of somebody in the hall. This is how the church is designed to operate. In your small group, there's all kinds of opportunities to speak the truth in love. And speaking the truth is not always saying negative, critical things. There's a whole lot of truth that needs to be said and is hard to say, which is positive, like encouragement. Encouragement's not easy for most of us to give. We have to kind of die to something in ourselves to give encouragement to somebody else. Encouragement is given a whole lot less than it is deserved. Certainly a whole lot less than it is needed. But it is a truth that is and can be spoken, and it's spoken in love. And it really does build people up. 
Max Carell does this kind of stuff on our pastoral staff most. We're all spiraling down into dismay over something or other. A sense of hopelessness sets in. <laughs> and Max is usually the first to sort of raise up and say, but God is faithful. We can trust the Lord. That's a truth that we all needed to hear, which buoyed us up. This is, should just be everywhere, all the time. Truth spoken in love. This is the gas that goes in the engine of the church and drives it, empowers it. Well, in closing, Paul brings us back around to gifts. In verse 15, he says, We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Here's my summary of that. Each of us is a part of Christ's body with something vital to contribute to its health and growth and unity. When all the parts, when all of us, following the lead of our head Jesus, use our gifts properly, that is, in loving service of others, the body grows. Childhood is left behind. Maturity advances. You have a gift from Jesus. A gift he, he gave to make you part of his body. Not a part of itself. What would a sermon be here without a quote from John Calvin? I want to read you this. and It's a good one. They're all good ones. Listen to this. That man is mistaken who desires his own separate growth. For what would, a pro what would it profit a leg or an arm if it grew to an enormous size? Or for the mouth to be stretched wider? <laughs> it would merely be afflicted with a harmful tumor. So if we wish to be considered in Christ, that gets serious. If we wish to be considered in Christ, let no man be anything for himself. But let us all be whatever we are for others. This is what Peter says about spiritual gifts in 1 Peter 4. He says, as each one has received a special gift. I kind of cringe whenever I hear the word special. feels like Disney. <laughs> you have a special gift from the Lord Jesus, a token of his victory and triumph, a part of himself, which he has entrusted to you. Here's what Peter says. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving others, serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Closing thought. We've grown a lot as a church over 26 years. It's been good growth. How much growing do we have to do? 
Are we satisfied with where we are in our maturity as a church? Consider that the standard is the measure of the stature belonging to the fullness of Christ. We have a long way to go. Getting there takes all of us. It's on you. It's on me. It's on us together. Each of us must lovingly, humbly do our part according to the gift that is in us to help mature and build up this church, this body. A time of transition is a good time to recommit ourselves to that kind of way, that kind of life together. We've been fathered and mothered well for a long time. Now we're the fathers and the mothers. No longer be children. We have important work to do. Are you doing your part? You can't do your part thinking about yourself. Looking for something for yourself. That just kills this whole organism. It's like a virus. Ambition, self-interest is a virus. You can't do this thinking about yourself. Give humbly and freely to others out of the truth and the grace that you know and have. Be a blessing to others around you by the true and the loving things that you have to say. There's a lot of growing to do. A lot of headroom. And it's exciting to mature. It's good to mature. There's strength and blessing and understanding and wisdom, usefulness that comes. Let's press on to know the Lord, all of us together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, how it instructs us and leads us. Thank you for your church and how you've designed it. Thank you for the gift that you've given to each of us here and the part that you've ordained for each of us to, to, to fulfill in advancing your cause. Would you help us to do it humbly, lovingly, and in faith? Help us to know what our part is. Help us to recognize the opportunities that you put before us all each day to be an encouragement, strength, a blessing to others through words of truth spoken in love. Would you cause love to reign and rule in this place so that we can grow and be healthy? Thank you, Father, for the gifts of your spirit. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.